This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Five years after a student was killed by a classmate, Arapahoe High School in Centennial is still coming to terms with what happened and how to prevent it from happening again. Just days before Christmas in 2013, senior Claire Davis passed away. She'd been on life support for days after being shot. This week, Claire's parents sat down with teachers, administrators, counselors, and current students. A few media outlets, including CPR, were invited to record what would become an intimate, revealing discussion about what's changed and what hasn't. We held our mic in the center of where they all sat, including Claire's mother, Desiree. From the the afternoon that Claire was shot, with all the kids that came to the hospital to visit us and see her, it was very apparent that the kids were watching us. They didn't know where to put their anger, their frustration, their sadness. So um, became very clear to Michael and I that we were going to lead everyone out of the darkness. And at times there were 40 or 50 kids at the hospital. And then upon her death, we knew we needed to reach out to the community. They needed to hear that we forgive Carl for killing her and that we also then in turn forgive the school district for uh, their failures. And then it was very important that through seeing the failures that there was going to be solutions. You heard Davis refer to the shooter, Carl Pearson. He'd previously threatened to kill his debate coach, and Littleton Public Schools came under criticism for not taking that threat more seriously. After opening fire inside the school, Pearson turned the gun on himself. Eventually, the Davises championed legislation that made schools legally liable if they failed to protect kids. No doubt that loomed large in the room as officials described the steps they're taking. The principal at Arapaho then and now is Natalie Primanko. We have done a lot around just educating and improving the support of student mental health. Because if you have a handle on that and can improve that, you don't have the safety concerns that we had, certainly when, when we lost Claire and, and Carl. So we... Right away at Arapaho, our, our staff started uh, conversations around, you know, how can we all know more about what's going on with students who are at risk for this kind of behavior? What came out of this roundtable, and let me be clear, it was assembled by Littleton Public Schools, not CPR News, but what came out of it is that many of the changes following Claire Davis's murder address violence in general, whether it's a school shooter or violence turned inward. You see, just this October, Arapahoe High canceled classes after two students killed themselves within days of each other. But Arapahoe isn't alone in struggling with suicide. It, it's a huge problem, not only across the state, but across the country. This is Chris Harms, who leads the state's School Safety Resource Center. She was at the roundtable. Suicide rates among young people are escalating, and nobody's quite sure why, but we don't have enough mental health resources here in Colorado, whether it's in individual school districts or in the communities. We, we are far behind the ratios that are suggested for school counselors, school psychologists, as well as um, social workers. So we need a lot more resources to address this issue. And unfortunately, we haven't been able to solve that problem yet. So what has Arapahoe High School and more broadly Littleton Public Schools done in the past five years? 
Well, they say they've doubled down on the Safe to Tell program. It's a statewide tip line created after the attack on Columbine High School not too far away. Tips go to school officials and law enforcement. Here's Nate Thompson, who oversees mental health services for the district. I would say five years ago, we probably had maybe 20 tips a year. Last year, we had almost 500. Suicide and self-harm is by far the number one tip that we get. Our kids use it. I think our parents use it. You can sometimes tell from the way that they're written. Um, I don't care who's using it. It's working. I really believe it's saving lives. A lot of it's coming in around um, mental health, and and kids are concerned for their friends around self-harm. And and so we use it as a supplement. We want kids to know there's an anonymous way to report, but we also want them to practice going and talking to an adult that they trust. Desiree Davis chimed in, again mother of Claire Davis, who was killed at Arapahoe High five years ago this month by that troubled student, Carl Pearson. You know, we're here really to identify that kid that is in the background because Carl's life mattered. And for him, it was a foreseeable situation. And so one of the notes I wrote, and I've just been stuck on this, and we both have, is if it's foreseeable, it is preventable. And that's something that the school district needs to really adopt, I feel. You're not going to be able to reach every kid, you know, that's out there in the background in the dark. But if you're seeing it, and the question I want to ask the kids is, if you ran into a Carl Pearson, who would you go to? Who would you go tell someone, I'm really worried about this situation. This kid scares me. Well, I definitely trust my teachers enough and um, the counselors enough to go to them. But if I don't have the time to speak to them, there is Safe to Tell, and I would probably go to Safe to Tell. Would you? Literally, I, I could see a list in my head. And I would probably go down the list if I ran into a person. I mean, honestly, Perminko. I mean, Mrs. Perminko, I would be like, yeah, she stops in the hallway to talk to so many people. I mean, like, a bunch of my teachers, I just come to class early, and there's so many people that are at Arapaho that see um, us struggling. And I hear so many teachers that I haven't had for three years, they come up to me, and they just see me. Like, my eyes just look different to them, and they're just like, what's wrong? And I feel like there are so many people that are available for us. Arapaho students Emmy Hawkins and Marcus Morgan. The question is, once a student expresses concern about a classmate or about their own mental health, what's a teacher to do? District officials say that's been a major focus in the last five years. They say staff are trained to request a threat assessment, first off, to see just what kind of danger a kid poses. One of those was conducted for Carl Pearson, by the way. Another tool? Staff can steer students to therapy. They can make a referral if they have a kid that they're concerned about. And if the, especially if this family doesn't have insurance, they can connect the kid and the family to these private mental health services. And if they don't have insurance, we're going to pay for it. So that's been something that's really removed a lot of those barriers. And so um, we've made a network now of almost 100 providers in our community that some are private practitioners, some are, are nonprofits, some of them are um, hospitals that are committed to working with us to get kids that help. I think the ongoing challenge we have, and I think we all struggle with this, is there is still stigma. And it's hard for a kid to say, yeah, I I do have problems and I want help. It's hard for parents sometimes to admit that my kid may have a problem and I may be worried. But a lot of that is reactionary. What to do if a kid is already in trouble? Littleton Public Schools Superintendent Brian Ewart 
says teaching kids coping strategies to deal with stress and disappointment, that has to be baked into the curriculum from the earliest grades. I got to Colorado in 1995, and if you were to implement a social-emotional curriculum, you would have been run out of Colorado on a rail. It was off-limits. You did not cross that threshold of the social-emotional learning piece that was done in the home. And now here we are talking um, in front of the press, in front of parents, um, about implementing pre-K through 12 lessons that will be taught at every single grade level. That is a significant change since 1995 that I thought I would never see in Colorado, and here we are. But that means teachers are being asked to do so much. One member of the roundtable wondered if colleges that train teachers are preparing them amply for this mental health role. And there was this from Meredith Henry, who leads the mental health team for Littleton Public Schools. I think the idea that school exists within the hours that kids are in our building is no longer. I think that school and our response, as you said, can be 24 hours a day throughout the summer. So just as things have changed in terms of being a student now with social media and access to technology, our response has to adapt and change, and it absolutely has, and it changes on a regular basis. One last thing. She mentioned social media there. The students present acknowledge smartphones can be a threat to mental health, but that they can also be a way to check in on classmates and raise the kinds of red flags that might prevent school violence. So that's an excerpt of a roundtable CPR News was invited to five years after Claire Davis was fatally shot at Arapahoe High School in Centennial. The school is also grappling with two recent suicides. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis contributed to the reporting. For the first time in Colorado, the state has ordered a local school board to hire an outside manager so the district can get back on track. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine found it has left students and teachers worried about their futures. Jenny Hernandez has already ordered her cap and gown, but the senior at Adams City High has a worry about graduation most seniors don't. I don't know if... She pauses. What is worrying the seniors is that the college is not going to acknowledge us anymore because of what's happening to our district. The school board has until February 25th to hire what's called an external management organization to run the district. Hernandez worries if the deadline's not met, the district could lose its accreditation. Leaders say diplomas will still satisfy college requirements. But students have other questions. How is all of this going to help our education? Because Students are showing up at community meetings to let district leaders know their concerns. Paul Guzman is in the top 10 of his class, but... When I take any type of exam, whether it's a PSAT test or just any exam in general, I always perform really poorly. Guzman wants to know how an external manager will help with that. Only 35% of Adams 14 graduates go on to some form of post-secondary education. And of those, nearly two-thirds need a remedial class. Adams City High junior Lauren Martinez says teachers are also feeling the stress. They've lost just as much hope as we have. Martinez says years of staff turnover, inconsistency, and a lack of resources have left many kids unprepared for life post-graduation. When I was in sixth grade on a military base, I would have textbooks. And I'd be like, oh, I understand this because if I go to this certain page, it teaches me all the steps. Instead of just like trying to go 
on like a YouTube video because our teachers can't give us any more resources and that's not their fault. Adam City High has had six principals in the last seven years. In 2017, students walked out of class after a year without a principal. That instability has helped fuel teacher turnover. Teacher Barb McDowell, a rare 21-year veteran and a union leader, says that puts a strain on the teachers who stay. Just recently, a colleague told her, I am just tired of training a brand new team every year. So when you are overwhelmed, you're having to teach your job, plus you're having to support all these new people, it just takes a toll. McDowell hopes a new external leader, which will oversee the district for at least four years, will bring consistency. School board member Dominic Moreno wants an external manager with expertise in creating a supportive culture. It's a challenging district to teach in and to work in, and we're going to have to create a unique employment environment in order to keep talented folks in our community. The external manager will make recommendations on curriculum, testing, teacher training, and scheduling. The local school board will retain the power to hire and fire employees, including the superintendent. But the outside management group will be able to place, transfer, and evaluate teachers. It's about the situation with our teachers. Back at the community meeting, students have more immediate worries. Because they're not teachers in the school and you guys haven't done anything about it. So um, thank you for the question. Giovanna Meras says her English lab class hasn't had a teacher since October. Sometimes there's not even a substitute. That class is totally chaotic. We're just sitting there either on our phones... Kids are throwing stuff around the class. She just wants to learn. The school says it's trying to hire, but there's a statewide teacher and substitute shortage. Teacher Barb McDowell worries about the effect on the kids. She has 7th and 8th graders ask her if their school is closing. She says when kids hear about a failing district, they think they're failures, and they're not. We've got some amazing kids, and we have some amazing kids that are filled with trauma. And then we're putting more trauma on them. And that is a crime. She wants the kids to know they're worth fighting for. And she has a hopeful message for teachers who are uncertain about staying or going. This is an opportunity. Yes, it's scary. But we have an opportunity to maybe really do some good things for this district. And our kids and our community deserve that. Parents, teachers, and students will push for a seat on the committee that chooses the external manager. Board member Moreno says he wants the process to be open, transparent, and inclusive. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. The last legislative session in Colorado was arguably one of the toughest in recent memory, not because of the policies lawmakers debated, but because of more than a dozen workplace harassment allegations against a handful of state lawmakers. Now, with a new session just around the corner, we're going to hear about how the issue still looms large. CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland joined us. Hi, uh, joins us. Hi, Benta. Hi, Ryan. First, what, what's happened to those lawmakers accused of harassment? It's still ongoing. Every allegation I uncovered was examined by an outside investigator and found to be credible. And former Democratic Representative Steve Lebsock, he was expelled from office. That's right. And that was the first expulsion in Colorado in over 100 years. 
Two other lawmakers are either stepping down from office or not seeking re-election in 2020. And they say it's not because of the allegations against them, but they want to leave the legislature for just other reasons. The biggest outstanding question is what will happen with Republican Senator Randy Baumgartner? I remember Baumgartner was accused of groping a former staffer and making offensive comments. So where do things stand with him, though? An expulsion vote against just one of the allegations failed last session, largely along party lines. But the Senate didn't vote on the full spectrum of allegations. And so now that Democrats control the chamber, they will in January, they could definitely bring back those charges. It seems like his own party does have concerns about his future right now. Republican Senate leaders haven't assigned Baumgartner to any Senate committees when lawmakers return to the Capitol. How unusual is that? And what does it mean to you? It's extremely unusual for a state lawmaker not to serve on a committee. Hmm. In fact, the House requires it, serving on a minimum of one committee. It's not required in the Senate, though. And there have been rumors for months that Baumgartner would leave and resign. He has two more years left before he'd be term limited. But if he does come back to the Capitol, he runs the risk that Democrats try to expel him again. And even though they'll have a majority in the Senate, an expulsion vote requires a two-thirds vote, so they'd need five Republicans to join with them. We don't know if Democrats would even try that or maybe propose another form of punishment. But either way, it would be a contentious start to the session. Sexual harassment and misconduct aren't easy to deal with in any workplace, let alone a public workplace full of politicians. Give us a sense of what it was like to be there for all of this last year, Bentham. It was emotionally draining and exhausting for almost everyone inside the building, you know, because we're talking about people's careers, families, their lives, improving the workplace culture. It's not an easy process. People have a lot of emotions around this issue. It was also tough for people coming forward with allegations to deal with the aftermath and some of the backlash. So it's left a lot of people feeling raw. And we're still in the middle of it and coming off a tough election cycle. So it's this added unknown element going into this next session. Yeah. Do you feel that when you're in the state capitol these days? Yeah, it's been an ongoing thing for reporters, staff, lawmakers, lobbyists. It doesn't just go away. And unless people were in that building every day last session, it's a little bit of a fishbowl. Everyone's kind of in this congested space. It's it's hard to describe how tense and just bad it was. Um, you could just see it on people's faces as you're passing them in the hallways. I mean, we had lawmakers wearing bulletproof vests because they things were so volatile they feared for their personal safety. So you just picture a family or a group going through something traumatic. It's, that takes a while to work through. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and our public affairs reporter Benta Berkland joins us ahead of the next legislative session in which the question, the issue of sexual misconduct still looms large. So the state hired a consultant to recommend changes in how sexual harassment is reported at the state capitol. Lawmakers also studied the issue over the interim. What might change as a result? There seems to be one clear area of agreement, and that's that both political parties don't feel that they want the head of each chamber to be the sole person responsible in determining consequences. This is after a complaint's been found credible against a sitting lawmaker. So I think there'll be some type of committee made up of lawmakers and maybe some outside experts that would do that. Um, There's also talk about creating an informal as well as a formal complaint process that exists, making improvements to that. So if someone experiences something they don't feel quite rises to the level of a formal complaint, but it still makes them uncomfortable, 
there will be a way for them to make someone aware and have that behavior addressed without going through a formal investigation. I see. Um, there's also a question of whether credible allegations against lawmakers should be made public. Right now, nothing's an open record, and lots of people across the political spectrum feel it's important to have some transparency for voters who ultimately can hold legislators accountable. You know, you'll have to do that with, at the same time, protecting confidentiality to some degree of an accuser. Right, and making sure that you're not preventing them from coming forward. Uh, If those rule changes go into effect, any sense of what their impact might be in this next session? I think that's an open question. There potentially could be more people coming forward with allegations, especially if the rules change in a way that makes it more palatable to accusers. Right now, a lot of people fear retaliation and whether it's going to be anonymous. They see how political it's become and they don't want to speak out. It's a unique workplace because a lawmaker can't easily be fired or held to account in a timely fashion. So there's also a wide range of behavior that may merit different types of punishment. Now, there are a lot of new lawmakers coming to the state capitol. How might that affect things? We'll have to see. They'll definitely have a fresh and new perspective, and they they won't be as emotionally drained by the issue as, as a lot of people are who were there last session. Some of them are coming into office thinking a lot about this issue, and for others, it's probably not on the top of their agenda. I mean, to that point, some might say that the issue of workplace harassment and sexual misconduct is something of a distraction that will keep lawmakers from tackling, gosh, growth, transportation, education, funding. Is there a trade-off, do you think? It wasn't an issue lawmakers were anticipating having to deal with, and some people maybe did feel it was a distraction. But a lot of others felt that the need to ensure a safe workplace environment for staffers, aides, interns, everyone in the building is a basic bottom line to being able to do those other things, like taking on those big issues lawmakers are tasked with. CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland. Still to come, tattoos that could tell you if you're sick. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. They said, go, go see Dr. Dahl. I'm Carla Walker from Colorado Public Radio Classical, and that's conductor and lecturer Scott O'Neill, my co-host in the CPR Performance Studio for a new podcast exploring the life and work of one of the great composers, Sergei Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff may be the best example, maybe the only example, of a composer who overcame severe writer's block with the help of hypnosis. He'd walk down the street to Nikolai Dahl's house, lie back in a deep, comfortable armchair, and Dahl would speak to him in his soft, hypnotic voice. You will begin to write your concerto. You will work with great facility. The concerto will be of an excellent quality. Hypnosis worked. Rachmaninoff was able to write his second piano concerto, the middle movement of which is absolutely stunning. It starts in this still, dark C minor. And very quickly, it turns to a warm, comforting E major. For CPR's great composers, wherever you get your podcasts, and thanks to CPR's supporting members who make digital content like this possible. Learn more at CPR.org.
It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. What if you could get a tattoo that changed colors as a way of alerting you to apply more sunscreen or that you had a fever? Well, that could actually be a thing. With new UV and heat-sensitive tattoos under development here in Colorado, Carson Bruns, assistant professor of mechanical engineering at CU Boulder, is creating tattoo ink that's more than aesthetic. So we want to make tattoos that will allow you to, for example, um, sense things that you can't currently sense. So ultraviolet light is an example of something that we can't really sense with our eyes, but it would be useful for us to be able to sense ultraviolet light because it damages our skin and increases our risk of skin cancer. Sometimes I joke that we want to make tattoos that give you superpowers. Bruns's interest in art and his background in chemistry inspired him to develop the tattoos. When I had this opportunity to do something new at CU, I kind of sat down and thought about how I could take these skills I have in nanotechnology and try to apply them in a field that I'm more passionate about, maybe something that had to do with art. And one of my favorite art forms is tattooing, so I sort of focused on tattooing and quickly realized that tattoos haven't been updated as a technology very much at all, actually, in almost 5,000 years. So we're still using these really kind of ancient, almost primitive um, materials and techniques for tattooing. The other kind of tattoo Bruns has developed is heat-sensitive and changes color when the skin gets warm, which could indicate a fever. He says he hopes the tattoos will someday detect other health conditions as well. So maybe if you were diabetic and you wanted to know your blood glucose levels, it would be really cool to have a tattoo that could just tell you that information or your blood alcohol content. These chameleon tattoos were first tested on pig skin. Brun says he is the first human test subject. In the case of the UV-sensitive tattoo, I did actually test that tattoo ink out on myself because I just really wanted to know if it was actually going to work and if it would actually stay as kind of a permanent tattoo and not just fade. Brun says it faded after about six months. The heat and UV-sensitive tattoos still must undergo several years of testing, so it may be a while before you can get ink that doesn't just look sick, but tells you if you actually are. Okay, you're about to hear the sounds of livestock, micro-livestock, that is. These are crickets being raised for you to eat. At the Rocky Mountain Micro Ranch in Denver, it's an edible insect farm. A recent study from CSU finds eating crickets might improve people's gut health. Wendy Lou McGill is founder and CEO of the Micro Ranch. We spoke last year about eating insects. Welcome to the program, Wendy. Thank you so much for having me. So the Rocky Mountain Micro Ranch is small in and of itself. You operate in a 40-foot shipping container in southwest Denver, you raise crickets as well as mealworms and waxworms. I understand those are eaten in the larval stage and you sell to restaurants and food producers. I want to start, though, with what some of your favorite ways are to eat insects. Well, I always like to say that um, the best ways haven't been discovered yet. Okay. But um, I think that um, crickets, when they're crisped up uh, with a little bit of fat added, coconut oil, they're great with popcorn. And um, 
We also, I also really love uh, a variety of ants that we import from China. They have um, an acid that they use as a defense mechanism that when you eat it is a really delicious citrusy flavor. So there really are a lot of flavor profiles to work with. You have brought uh, with you salted caramels with these Chinese black ants inside and cricket kettle corn. Um, I know that a lot of people are becoming familiar with powder forms of insects. So I know there are those chips with cricket powder, uh, but it sounds like you have a real penchant for eating the insects whole. Is that true? Yeah, that's what we've primarily focused on. There are some wonderful snack food items that have cricket cricket powder. Um, And the powder is just a crazy, uh, dense nutritional ingredient to add to foods. But I think that um, in addition to that, the whole insects really provide an opportunity for people to get a full flavor and to really start to question their food prejudices um, around eating what we eat and what we don't eat. Food prejudices. Say more about that. Well, I like to think Um, try to think outside of our culture in a way and look at what we think are normal. So there, you know, could be something from a fast food restaurant that has um, fried chicken instead of buns and a hamburger in the middle and a a lot of sort of processed condiments. And that is considered to be a little bit crazy, but somewhat normal. Um, And then I show up and try to encourage people to eat insects, which are eaten by um, the UN thinks 2 billion people around the world. Anthropologists think that it was the first animal that humans ate. So it's really not only a new food, but it's really also a a very ancient food for humans. As you've talked specifically about the crickets, it sounds like you enjoy the inherent crispiness in them. I will admit that even as a bug aficionada, I um, do prefer crispy bugs. I'm still a little bit uh, adverse to the the, the, um, juicier Insects. Juicier insects like what? Well, um, for example, we actually just added a fourth species of tomato hornworms, which um, if you've ever seen them on your tomato plants in August are about the size of a small pinky, um, very bright green. And if one was not, uh, wouldn't, if they weren't uh, roasted or cooked well, then they would be quite juicy. Quite juicy. Yes. And that's your own slight food prejudice. Indeed. Uh, what is a day's work like at the micro ranch? Yeah, so it's a lot like taking care of any kind of animal that we raise for livestock. Um, There is, uh, you know, checking on food and water, checking on health. And then at different life stages, um, there are things like moving um, the containers that the adult crickets have laid their eggs in into a nursery space. Um, And then there's harvesting, which is uh, also you know, part of raising livestock. How are crickets killed? They are killed, um, actually all the species that we raise with the exception of the hornworms are killed by freezing them. And we feel really good about that for a number of reasons. Um, The primary one is that it mimics what happens to insects in nature when winter comes. So um, when they're put into the freezer, their body temperature lowers. They obviously are cold-blooded. And um, they go into a, a sort of a stasis, a sleep, and eventually they don't wake up. Although we did have a reanimation event once when I delivered crickets to um, actually the first time to Linger, and they hadn't been frozen long enough. Linger is a restaurant in Denver. And and what, all of these crickets came alive? In the fryer. All right. Has insect farming mechanized in the way that traditional farming has? That's a great question. It has not yet. 
Um, it is a problem that creates a, a high cost for insects. There, we believe that the potential for insects to be a very low cost, very high nutritional um, uh, source of protein um, is is that the potential is very high. However, because farming is primarily so manual, that that potential can't be realized the in the United States. The labor costs are so high exactly. here. Exactly. Okay. Yes, in summary. You say in the United States. Does that mean that that nut has been cracked elsewhere? Not exactly. It means that um, one of the biggest places for cricket farming in particular is Thailand. The UN estimates there are 22,000 farms of different sizes in that country. And um, because labor costs are so much lower there, they're able to produce a really great product, particularly the cricket powder, at a very low, a much lower cost than North American farms. I see. So the labor costs differing from nation to nation. We're speaking with Wendy Lou McGill, founder and CEO of the Rocky Mountain Micro Ranch in Denver. She raises crickets and other insects for people to eat. Uh, You have uh, intimated that you supply your products to restaurants in Colorado and and elsewhere, I gather. Yes, that's right. We've been able to work with several restaurants in Denver and beyond. And what... uh, are they doing to integrate them into the menu? What dishes have you seen? That's one of the most exciting parts of this adventure has been to see what chefs will do with insects. I mean, um, you know, I can crisp some crickets and put them into popcorn, but they've come up. uh, We've had some really interesting dishes like um, uh, a cricket empanada that is a very um, sort of elevated dish with pork belly and and the masa incorporates a little bit of cricket powder into it. there has, was uh, a chef who worked with chorizo and mealworms, and so ch- the mealworms were just one of the protein sources in the sausage. How do you eat the mealworms? They're in what stage, and what, what uh, oh, yeah. do they crisp up? Or right, so mealworms are the larva stage of a beetle, the darkling beetle, and they crisp up very nicely. They actually have a higher fat content and slightly lower protein than crickets, so it's a, just a really different, um, a different. Uh, animal. A different animal. Literally literally, literally. and figuratively. That's right. What are the obstacles to to making this a widely eaten product? As we said, the powder form is gaining in popularity, but there are still, as, as you've hinted at, some prejudices around other forms. Well, whenever uh, the goal is to get people to eat something that it has an entire section in many stores devoted to killing it, right? We're, we know that we have an uphill battle, so... That's right, because uh, part of the grocery store is, is raid, right? Exactly. Uh-huh. Right, so um, there is... Really, it just boils down to consumer acceptance, and um, I, think of a, I think of it in many ways around food prejudices, but I also understand that um, from personal experience uh, that it's that it is um, it really is a large mental hurdle to get over. Um, I, I still experience when I try a new um, species. Uh, for example, I had the chance to try tarantula recently, and it was it was hard to eat. Tarantula mentally is that furriness removed when you eat it? Oh, that's such a good question. You remove it with a creme brulee torch before it's cooked. In the packaging here, I think of the, yeah, these uh, are the crickets. It says contains insects. People with shellfish allergies may also be allergic to insects. So there's some crossover between shellfish allergies and these foods. Well, um, 
uh, insects, arachnids, and shellfish and some other things are all part of the arthropod phylum. Um, and it's kind of like their cousins. So there's a poorly understood crossover of shellfish allergy um, reactions. Poorly understood. So maybe areas for more research. You know, I, I know that one argument for cricket farming in particular is that it is more sustainable, better for the environment and other method, methods of raising protein. But a fairly recent study published in PLOS One, which is a peer-reviewed online journal, showed that raising crickets is just slightly more efficient than raising chickens, for instance, for food. Um, so how much of a difference can this ultimately make? Yeah, that is um, a, that also a great question. So um, again, the uh, what we look at for efficiency, a lot of it boils down to feed-to-meat ratio, which is how much feed do you need to raise a specific amount of um, of meat. Right. Or, it's an input-output question. Exactly. Um, so on that, so that study particularly focused on that aspect, which had previously been um, not well researched, but numbers were being published that were were it turns out probably not realistic. Um, I do think that. It was. It, I think it's a great study. I think that we do need a lot more research on the other sides of the um, sustainability in farming aspect. Um, when you're looking at land usage, and you're also looking at um, at waste output, um, cricket farming in particular is a much uh, gentler on the environment as uh, versus poultry farming, and oh. it's definitely the closest to poultry farming versus hog or cattle. You talk about land use because you can do it with a fairly small footprint, as you're demonstrating in Denver, and then waste product, you know, uh, what? I guess crickets don't poop as much as cows. Is that what you're saying? Well, um, or is it on a per capita basis or something? Right. Uh, if you're doing it by body weight, uh, they poop equal equally to cows. Uh-huh. Um, in that, it's um, like many animals, they basically poop the equivalent of their body weight a little bit less. Um, however, if you're looking at cows, um, cow poop and farts, we're really getting potty mouth here, so no, I apologize. Right, but methane. You methane, know, exactly. exactly is, is a greenhouse gas, a powerful one. And um, and it, the contribution that's coming from livestock uh, from livestock production is actually the one of the largest contributors within agriculture. Well, thank you so much for sharing this world, this micro world with us. Thank you very much. I hope you'll try some insects. Wendy Lou McGill is founder and CEO of the Rocky Mountain Micro Ranch in Denver. She raises crickets and larvae for people to eat. We spoke in May of last year. New research from CSU suggests eating crickets can improve gut health. Whoa, yeah, yeah. Love you more than I can say. I love you twice as much tomorrow. Oh, 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 love you more than I can say. The word miracle is thrown around a lot, but it seems like the right word to use about the crash of Flight 217. Forty years ago this month, a passenger plane left Steamboat Springs for Denver. It went down with 22 people on board in a blinding blizzard on Buffalo Pass. While two people died, including the pilot, everyone else survived. The crash and a monumental rescue are the subject of the book Miracle on Buffalo Pass. I spoke with author Harrison Jones last December, along with First Officer Gary Richard Coleman. 
Gary will get to the backstory of this in a moment, but I want to point out that it may have been snow that saved your life, acting as a sort of airbag. When the cockpit separated from the body of the aircraft, the snow, I was the lowest pilot. We came in on our right side. I'm, a, I'm the co-pilot, so I was on the right side of the aircraft. It scooped snow in as we were stopping. It effectively gave me a snowbag instead of an airbag. Scott, on the high side of the airplane, really had not too much in front of him, and that's why he suffered uh, some of his uh, dynamic injuries. This is the pilot of the aircraft who died in the yeah, crash. Scott Kloppenstein. Uh, let, let's step back. So this crash took place December 4th, 1978. Uh, it was a propeller plane known as the Twin Otter. And Harrison, I'm curious how you came to know about Rocky Mountain Airways Flight 217. Yes, Ryan. Uh, I have, I've written several fiction books, and uh, evidently Gary had, written, had read one of the books, and his daughter contacted me via email. And Kelly told me about her dad's story and asked me if I'd be interested in, in writing about it. So she introduced me to her dad, and Gary and I got together and visited the crash site. And we decided that if we could contact enough people to, to uh, get the story and make it historically correct and accurate, that we would do it. And contacting enough people wasn't, I, I suppose, too terribly difficult, given the number of survivors. Is that right, Harrison? We had to track down a lot of people, and we were able to do that. Uh, primarily through social media. Gary's wife, Debbie, and his daughter, Kelly, were very, very helpful in in, uh, helping me do that. We were able to track down almost half the passengers and almost all of the rescue personnel. So, Gary, your daughter is the one who really got the ball rolling on this project. My understanding is that you really didn't talk much about the crash, about having survived it. Uh, What what changed your mind? Well, I now have a little better understanding of some of the World War II vets, my dad included, that never, ever talked about what they went through. And it was not something that I had, I just didn't care to talk about it very much. And my, I talked to my family, and my daughter told me one day, said, Dad, your story is starting to change a little bit. Let's get this written down. Uh, memory can be deceiving sometimes, huh? Yes. Uh, this was a route you were familiar with and had flown many times without incident, so Steamboat Springs to Denver. When did you and the captain realize there was a problem on that snowy night? There are highways in the sky called Victor Airways. We were flying east on Victor 101, and there's a, a intersection in the sky and which uh, you have to be at a certain altitude. We could not climb out of 13,000 feet going east. And, of course, going east, there are obstacles in the way that are much higher than 13,000 feet. And we turned around to go back to Steamboat because we could not make our MOCA minimum obstacle clearance. And this is a function of ice, correct? This was primarily, at that time, downdrafts that were unforecast that were coming out of the west. And uh, so you had turned to go back to Steamboat. Yeah, and when you, turn, when you turn an aircraft, especially when you're trying to climb and you're at a slower speed, you lose some vertical component of lift. And that put us down another 
oh, maybe another 100 feet, and we picked up a little bit of ice. But we had flown over all of this icing and downdraft when we went to Steamboat because we were already at altitude. When did you know that you weren't going to be able to stay in the air? Uh, When we hit the tower. Tell me about the tower. Well, these big steel towers that transmit a lot of uh, voltage go over the crosses Victor 101, which is our highway. And we could not see the end of the wings for snow and ice. We actually flew into this cloud because we were a few feet lower than 13,000 feet. And that, the severe icing along with the severe downdrafts, uh, we had about 10 knots between stall and top speed. We were trying to climb. <sighs> this is still hard to talk about. Yeah. And like- we did hit the, uh, about five feet in from the end of the right wing, we hit this tower, started an immediate right turn, and there was a dark spot in front of us, and there was a white spot to the right of us. You and aimed for the white spot because you figured it was snow and would be softer. Well, that's one of the things you learn when you're flying. If if you're going to make an emergency landing, you go to the light and not the dark. Harrison Jones, the passengers on board really had no warning that this was coming. Is that right? That's correct. The, uh, the airplane uh, had a rudimentary public address system, and it did not have a flight attendant on board. Gary and Scott basically had their hands full with the airplane and did not have time to make a a public address announcement. So the passengers were pretty much unaware that uh, the emergency situation existed. Gary, do you remember the impact? I'm, I'm always curious about that in crashes, how conscious you are when the worst of the trauma is occurring. No, I have no, no memory of the impact. Are you glad of that? I'm glad of a lot of things. What else are you glad of? <laughs> yeah, tell me about that. I'm glad that uh, we had such incredible passengers. We had such incredible uh, people that were on the rescue. Uh, there were about, I want to want to say 10 to 15 little miracles that stacked up on top of each other that allowed all of the survivors of that unfortunate evening. 22 aboard and 20 survived. As you said, the pilot died, the captain died, that is, and one passenger. When you came to, Gary, what do, what do you remember? I remember being angry. Angry? <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't move. I was buried in snow for approximately three hours, they dug me out, and I was still couldn't get my feet untangled. And I remember trying to get out and, and telling people that I could help. And uh, then there was just brief periods of time when I'm aware of, of where I was. It's the middle of the night. It must be freezing cold. And Harrison Jones, it's, it's really the passengers who come to that begin to help in the rescue. This is before... First responders can arrive, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, Fortunately, there were a few of the passengers who were not seriously injured. Everyone had injuries, but some of them were not terribly injured. One of those was a young man named John Pratt, who was only 20 years old. John was an Eagle Scout and uh, had some training in survival 
he was able to help uh, most of the passengers through the night. Uh, John was able to get the baggage bin open, and he and an, another gentleman, a 19-year-old named Vern Bell, were able to dig out the baggage and find clothing and blankets and, and anything they could use to keep the people warm. So the people who were not seriously injured helped those who were, and it was just an amazing story of, of character and integrity and courage and determination. They're just a wonderful bunch of people. Can you shed more light on on what they did to keep spirits up at that point? I mean, I can imagine Harrison and Gary uh, that spirits might have been awfully low. I think uh, probably the young men, John Pratt was only 20, Vern Bell was only 19. Those two gentlemen showed extreme leadership in keeping spirits up and just encouraging people and treating them as best they could with the rudimentary equipment they had. I understand they sung Christmas carols to pass the time. That is true. Uh, Vern Bell did uh, relate that in the book, that he and some of the other passengers sang Christmas carols to pass the time and distract them from the extreme circumstances that they were in. What were the extent of your injuries, Gary? And what was recovery like? The extent of my injuries? I was uh, <laughs> injured quite severely. I had, I had heard that I had some frostbite. My hand was out of the snow for three hours, and I guess the temperature was in the minus 30 range, and it snowed approximately anywhere from six to eight feet that evening. My goodness. Uh, how, how, how did the rescue go down, Harrison? First of all, they were in contact with uh, air traffic control, and air traffic control obviously knew that they had a problem when they lost contact. The airplane had a uh, ELT, an electronic locator transmitter, on board, so that uh, sent the signal that the airplane was down. The Civil Air Patrol in Colorado was notified, and uh, the gentleman by the name of Jim Awesome led his ground search and rescue team, and they followed the ELT to find the area. A gentleman by the name of Dave Lindau was in Steamboat Springs. He heard about the crash, and uh, Dave had the only privately owned snowcat in the area. And he very graciously volunteered his snowcat and himself, and uh, he and a gentleman named Ed Duncan loaded it up and hauled it over Rabbit Ears Pass and into the search area. And I understand that when rescuers arrived, they were surprised by all of the life, because it's so rare that there are this many survivors. And uh, just in the last 10 or 15 seconds here, I wonder, Gary, do you, do you maintain a relationship with the survivors? Oh, yeah. Well, thanks for sharing this story with us. We appreciate it. You're totally welcome. And, and may this uh, book be a, a nice thing for many families that need to have nice things happen at Christmas time. Harrison Jones is author of Miracle on Buffalo Pass, Rocky Mountain Airways Flight 217. Gary Richard Coleman was the first officer when that plane went down 40 years ago this month between Steamboat Springs and Denver. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. You're listening to CPR News.